Creative Brain Candy by Creators for Creators. Simply Stogies is a passion project that is fan-funded. If you enjoy the content Simply Stogies brings to you and would like to see more and different kinds of content, a website, more on-location podcasts with blenders, manufacturers, or retailers, or video reviews, please consider supporting Simply Stogies on Patreon at patreon.com slash simplystogies. Supporting Simply Stogies can get you a ton of perks, including instant access to bonus material, access to Simply Stogies Discord, including a Patreon-only channel, shoutouts on the show and social media, a monthly virtual herf with myself and other supporters, the ability to suggest cigar reviews, cool swag, or the opportunity to do a cigar review on Simply Stogies podcast. Thank you for your consideration and your generosity. Now, on to Simply Stogies. You're listening to Simply Stogies, a monthly podcast dedicated to the cigar enthusiast. Light up a stogie, sit back and relax while James brings you along on his journey as a new cigar smoker. Simply Stogies will review cigars, discuss topics that cigar aficionados find important, and will probably learn a few things along the way. Now, here's your host of Simply Stogies, James. Welcome to Simply Stogies. I am your host, James. This episode, we've got a special guest. We want to welcome back Joe to the show. Joe, thank you for coming back on. Absolutely. My pleasure. Thanks for having me again, James. Uh, for those of you who don't remember, Joe is our Cuban expert at simplystogies.club. He's a Cuban expert probably everywhere else as well. <laughs> you know, it always makes me laugh a little bit when I'm called a Cuban expert. That might be generous on your part. Well, uh, you know, you certainly know more than I do about Cubans and probably more than a lot of people do. It's not, especially here in the States, that's not something that uh, a lot of people know about. So I am going to defer to you as the expert, whether uh, you really are or not. Fair enough. I'll take it. <laughs> All right. So before we dive into this episode, we really start talking about Cubans uh, and, and some of the issues that come around, uh, come up when you're dealing with Cuban cigars. Uh, there's a couple of new uh, or a couple of items that I need to take care of. There's a brand new cigars and coffee on our YouTube channel. Check that out. Myself and Tim, we're drinking coffee and smoking cigars. Uh, it's a good time. Just go to YouTube, search for Simply Stogies, uh, and we'll pop right up uh, cigars and coffee with Tim. Also, check out simplystogies.com for the latest from the podcast, our staff, and our YouTube channel. We've got some brand new merchandise there as well. If you'd like to support the show, down in the bottom corner, very last link. Click that. It'll take you some great Simply Stogies podcast swag uh, that you can check out. You can also go to creativebraincandy.com, click the merch button in the top, and that will also take you to our store. Speaking of creativebraincandy.com, uh, if you are a podcaster, if you're into video games, Bad Gamers Anonymous is looking for two brand new podcasters, two new hosts for the show. If that's something you're interested in, click on creativebraincandy.com, click the apply button at the top. And let us know that you're interested in joining Bad Gamers Anonymous and the Creative Brain Candy Media Cooperative. I think that's it. I think that's all I've got this week. Thank, thank God. 
just <laughs> it gets to be a little a little much. So Joe, let's let's for those of you that missed the very first episode and you don't want to pause this and go back and listen to it, which I believe was episode seven. Uh, tell us a little bit about your experience with Cubans. Sure. Uh, so my experience with, uh, with, uh, Cuban cigars started, uh, in the late nineties. Uh, so I've been, I've been smoking cigars, smoking Cuban cigars, um, among those for a little over 20 years. And, uh, my my first introduction to Cuban cigars was kind of getting involved in the the very early internet communities uh, that were forming around um, you know in the late '90s everything including cigars uh, and getting to know some of the the great brothers who are uh, part of this hobby back then and you know getting to know them a little bit swapping cigars and getting to try a really interesting variety of things and getting to try a few uh, Cuban scars uh, back at that time and kind of getting a little bit of an introduction to them uh, just at a time when they were about to undergo a dramatic change and never be the same again. So it was a, a fortunate time to get into Cuban cigars uh, and also kind of a bittersweet time because it was, it was a fantastic introduction uh, to some really wonderful cigars. Uh, and then almost immediately uh, became impossible ever to have that experience with them again. So it's been a since then a, a really varied experience over a lot of changes in uh, the cigar industry and in the Cuban cigar world in you know what the strains of tobacco actually are, what the cigars are, how they behave, how they smoke. The entire experience of enjoying a Cuban cigar uh, has changed dramatically over that time. So um, it's uh, it's been an interesting ride to say the least. Well, let's talk about that change. Like what happened? So quite a few things happened early on. So my first experiences with, with Cuban cigars were, I think I, my, the, the first Cuban cigars I recall buying, uh, were mostly, uh, part of shorts, uh, just because they were inexpensive. Uh, they were inexpensive. They were wonderful cigars. This was like 97, 98. Uh, and back then you could get a, a dress box of 25 part shorts for i think they were like 94 dollars and on my you know <laughs> meager college budget at the time that was perfect they were great little cigars uh, and then as i mentioned i got into trading got to try some other things and the part of the shorts were were really good really enjoyable cigars uh but they for me were not it didn't it didn't give me the you know the kind of full mystique and the the uh, the full experience that you know is the the iconic Cuban cigar, and it was later on when uh, someone, you know, a, a brother in the the hobby, shared with me uh, a punch double Corona. That was the first time, again, like ninety eight, ninety nine, somewhere in there. I smoked a punch double Corona, and it absolutely uh, just changed my my entire cigar smoking world. That was when the light bulb went on. And when I really had the epiphany of, oh, this is what everybody's talking about. And right then, you know, right around 1998 is, was the, the tail end of when Cuba was still growing its previous generation of tobacco. It was using uh, the old uh, Criollo and Corollo seeds. And Leading up to the late 90s, leading up to the, the year 2000, Cuba had been working hard to 
to hybridize seeds and create new strains of tobacco that were more resistant to certain kinds of disease, certain kinds of rot and mold, and uh, were less susceptible to uh, uh, changes in uh, weather patterns, where they were more resilient. And they succeeded in doing that. So in 2000, they came out with a Habano 2000 wrapper, and then in subsequent years, they they started you know, doing further hybridizations. The Habano 2000 wrapper leaf uh, that they were growing at the time wasn't quite what anyone was hoping for. Uh, so in subsequent years, they started kind of doing back hybridizations to try to retain some of those desirable characteristics, some of the disease resistance, uh, some of the, the temperature and, and moisture resilience, but still get some of that old flavor and the old characteristics uh, that I had, you know, just had just barely had time to fall in love with back in, in 98. And they've gotten a little closer to that over the years, and they've hybridized multiple strains so many times that... Uh, honestly, I'm, I'm not sure there's anybody outside of Tava Cuba, uh, the Cuban uh, uh, tobacco monopoly, who really knows what they're growing, what they're planting, what they're rolling now. So the the tobacco itself has changed dramatically over that period of time. The other thing that changed uh, right around uh, the turn of the century was you know, the, the mid to late 90s had seen a huge boom in the popularity of cigars, both in the United States and worldwide. And the Cuban state uh, tobacco monopoly very reasonably decided that they needed to be part of that boom and to capitalize on it. So they, uh, by the best estimates I've seen, tripled their production in a very short period of time, within one or two years, tripled their production. And they did that in the only way that was physically possible. They did that by planting seed in areas that had never been used to cultivate tobacco before, uh, was harvested by people who had no experience handling it, treated it by people who had never had any experience treating it in facilities that were hastily put together, bundled it, shipped it to factories uh, where it was rolled by a huge new generation of untrained inexperienced rollers to put together this you know substandard leaf uh, as best they could and so from 99 2000 2001 all of those changes kind of converged it was new tobacco enormously expanded production inexperienced rollers and you had three really really not great years for cuban cigar production and it wasn't until probably 2003 when the experience of the rollers uh, improved uh, when production kind of came back to a, a sustainable level and the quality improved. And the other contributing factor to that was that uh, around 2000, I'm, I'm probably mispronouncing it, but uh, Altitis, Altitis, the, the, uh, the large uh, Spanish uh, tobacco conglomerate bought a 50% stake in Habanos SA, which is the, the marketing distribution arm of the, the Cuban tobacco business. And they, they started implementing some quality control measures. So they, they were probably uh, instrumental in both the expansion and production that caused some of the quality problems and some of the quality control measures that helped rectify those problems. And then you know, over the last 20 years have also been instrumental in launching things like the uh, limited edition program, uh, the regional program, the reserves and grand reserves, all of these special cigars 
that are you know limited and priced higher and distributed very scarcely. So all of those things, every single one of those things has been kind of a, on its own would have been a sea change uh, at any point over the last 20 years. But they kind of all happened between 99 and 2002 uh, and just completely shifted the entire, uh, the entire frame for Cuban cigars. So before that time, did you have to age cigars still? Did you still have to age the Cubans? Because we talked a little bit last time about how you can't really smoke a Cuban young is what they call it. Right. Because, uh, when you do, it, it's just not ready yet because they're, they're pumping this product out because that's their, their main export and, and Cuba needs the money. So what was there a difference then? Could you have a box and have it been rolled, you know, the year previous and could you have smoked it? You absolutely could have. I would not recommend it. <laughs> you know, maybe you could. I, I will say that. I couldn't. You know, I remember, God, I remember smoking cigars from that time that were uh, not particularly well rested. You know, 97, 98, I was smoking cigars from 95, 96. And it was a, it was a completely different experience. I mean, uh, those were cigars back then uh, with the old uh, Cuban Corollo seed uh, leaf that, you know, you would, you would not want to smoke one of those cigars, uh, on an empty stomach. Those were after dinner, evening time cigars, uh, to enjoy while you remain well hydrated, you know, <laughs> back then you, I cannot imagine, uh, how, I don't know how your resistance would have needed to be built up in order to dare smoke a Cuban cigar in, in the morning. I'm sure people did it. I'm, you know, I'm sure there were people around who, you know, smoke five Cuban cigars a day right out of the box and, and then they're just fine. But I mean, they were much heavier, much uh, fuller cigars. And I think that's been borne out by the fact that very, very few cigars from that era exist anymore or are available anymore. But every once in a while, I can come across something from 96 and 97. And at this point it's going on 25 years old uh, and I can pull that out of the humidor and cut it and light it now. And it is still a very, very full bodied, very, very rich cigar. It's not strong anymore. It doesn't have any, any sharp edges left to it, but I mean, it has not lost a step and that's after a quarter of a century in a box. Uh, so you can, you can kind of mentally think back to, to what that must've been like, you know, right off the rollers table, right off the truck. To me, that's incredible because it's only been 20 years or so. And you're saying that like, when I think of a morning cigar, the first thing I think of is a Cuban. Like, do I want to, do I want to pull something out of the old commie door? Right. And you're, you're telling me that in, in the late nineties, mid to late nineties, you couldn't do that. Again, you could have, but it would have been a very, very <laughs> different day that you were planning for. Right. Uh, yeah, I mean, it, it's completely inverted from what it was 25 years ago. 25 years ago, you know, in the entire world of cigars, Cuban and non-Cuban, uh, the Cuban cigars were the, the heaviest, strongest cigars, you know, by region. Uh, and now they are, if not among the lightest, they might be the, the lightest bodied uh, you know, as, as a region. And nowadays, if you want a really strong, really full bodied cigar, Nicaraguan Puros are the way to go. Right. And, and it's, it's completely the opposite of what it used to be. That's, that's a huge paradigm shift. 
in our lifetime. Yeah, absolutely. And you're saying it all happened in the course of basically three years. More or less. I would say that, you know, yeah, by, by 2003, um, so I mean, the, the box dates uh, trail the, the vintage, trail the, uh, the crop that went into rolling them by 18 months, two years. So by 2003, uh, 2004, 2005, then you're starting to get that first generation of uh, Habanos 2000 wrappers. Uh, the new tobacco strains, and those have become, you know, predominant uh, as the the raw products. And yeah, that was it. That was the sea change. And and it's kind of been a uh, a linear progression along that same track of, you know, a milder cigar and one that is is more approachable at a younger age. You know, the 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 modern strains of tobacco not only don't need years and years and years of age, but you know, there's, they've been around for long enough now that we're starting to get a little bit of uh, a perspective on, on how well they age and, and how, how, how long their legs really are. And that question is kind of still up in the air. It's, it's still unfolding, but it, it's almost certainly going to be different from those pre-2000 uh, strains. And I'm going off memory here, but if, if memory serves on the last, uh, the, the last podcast you were on for, I believe you said after like 10 or 15 years now, uh, the Cubans that are rolled, you know, today are going to lose their bite. They're not going to be, they're probably not going to be that great to smoke. So this is my own personal opinion. And I, and I think this is probably a minority opinion. There are lots and lots of people who, you know, in 2020 are revisiting some really good vintages from earlier this century, from you know 2005, 2008, 2010. So they're looking at uh, they're experiencing cigars now that are 10, you know, 15 years old. And, and there's a lot of positive uh, opinions about those. A lot of positive experiences with them. My own personal experience uh, with my stock from from that era uh, is the current strains of tobacco to me seem to age in a very particular way and they don't necessarily lose strength they don't necessarily uh, become bland or flavorless or, or anything like that but in my experience a lot of them all kind of converge to a single kind of profile you know it doesn't matter the the vitola or the the marca the brand or the size um, you know, once they get to 10, 15 years old, they kind of all start to taste the same to me. And it, they, they're not bad, but, you know, the way I look at it is if I pull out a, a cigar from my humidor, from a Cuban cigar from my humidor from 2010, it doesn't matter if it's a Bolivar or a Partagas or a Romeo y Julieta. It's going to taste like 2010 tobacco, and, and that's it. And, and it's nice, it's enjoyable, uh, but it's lost, it's, it's lost whatever uh, kind of brand-specific or uh, size-specific blend characteristics that it had when it was younger. Uh, and the flip side of that is, you know, I can pull out a, a Cuban cigar from, you know, 2015. I'm smoking a lot of 2014, 2015 now. And they still have those distinctive characteristics. You know, the 2014-15 Monte Cristo still have kind of that nice cocoa flavor. You know, the Boulevards still have that um, 
you know, earthy leather kind of character. The the Cohibas still have their kind of lemongrass and, and honeycomb characteristics. And I'm smoking those now. I'm smoking my four, five, six-year-old Cuban cigars now because this is what I, I believe to be their prime. I believe that in another, you know, three to five years, they're still going to be good, but they're all going to taste the same. They're all going to taste like the 2010s taste now. Interesting. Interesting. So I, I want to talk then about the 2019 crop. I mean, this kind of just dovetails right into that. Uh, I've heard a lot of folks talk that the 2019 crop, anything rolled in 2019, like you can smoke it now and it might be, be a little young, but it's fine. Go ahead and smoke it. I've got a couple of, of 19 boxes. And I'm like, I don't know if I want to try that. What are your thoughts on on last year's? Have you tried any from 2019? Yeah, absolutely. I've I've smoked some 2019. I I pay a lot of attention to the vintages just because of the nature of how Cuban cigars get bought and kind of the the mechanism of that. I don't very frequently have an opportunity to you know put my hands on a box and stick my nose in it and, and really scrutinize it before I buy it. So just because of the way I acquire them, vintages kind of set the the table for me in terms of percentages, you know, the percent chance that I'm going to get a good box versus a mediocre one. So um, because I pay a lot of attention to vintages, I'll I'll be honest, I own absolutely zero boxes from 2017. I own very, very few from 2018, 14, 15, 16, a little less. So we're all good. And then 19, I started buying again because 19, you know, all evidence, all available information points to the fact that um, the, the crops in 2017 were extraordinarily good. And that's the tobacco that's showing up in the 2019 box codes. Uh, so, so yeah, I've, I've smoked some of those. Uh, I've bought some of those. And I think you're exactly right. I don't think that they require any age. I think in, you know, three to five years, they'll probably, they'll probably uh, smooth out around the edges a little bit. But basically, at this point, they are what they are. I think the most important thing for young cigars now is, you know, just let them acclimate in your humidor. Let them recover from their travels a little bit. You know, let the, the humidity uh, stabilize. Uh, let their, uh, their moisture content stabilize. Uh, and then light them up. You know, you might get a little bit of harshness in that final third. You might lose, you know, a little bit of the nuance uh, once they start to get hot a little bit. And, you know, that's what will improve in three to five years. But for the most part, the smoking experience, I think, now is, you know, in their their youth, you know, less than a year, a year old, two years old. Uh, I think they're, they, they are what they're, they're going to be. There's only been a couple that I've really enjoyed, uh, you know, young. Uh, Juan Lopez, number two, I think is great. That doesn't, for me, that doesn't require a lot of age on them. Uh, and then the uh, quite or say fifties don't. Are there any other that you can think of from previous years, twenty nineteen excluded, where you're like, yeah, I'd smoke that. Uh, th- that I would smoke young. Yeah, that you'd smoke without without resting, without any aging. That you know, you just let it acclimate to your humidor and pull it out and smoke it. So there's the list of what I wouldn't smoke young is shorter than the list of what I would. Um, really? Yeah, just because of the the 
the tobacco that's being grown and used now, it, it's all, you know, perfectly approachable in its youth. It's perfectly kind of representative of its character and its flavors and its profile in its youth. Um, there's only... There's only a few cigars, uh, Cuban cigars now that I that I really make an effort not to smoke young, and that's only because once they lose that those those few rough edges, once they they you know the the tobaccos marry and harmonize just a little bit, I know they're going to become so 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 good if I can just hold off for three to five years. There's a few that I do that with. You know, Cohibas really blossom in, in three to five years to me. Boulevard tends to to have a few more rough edges, so those you know kind of benefit disproportionately from a few years. There's some some Boulevard uh, regionals that I have that that I'm really looking forward to. You know, 2023 when I can start dipping into those. Um, but basically, everything else is is fair game. Wow! All right. Well. I mean, that means I don't have to really age a whole lot that I've got because I don't, I mean, the Cohiba's, yeah, I'll age those a little bit, but I think anything else that I've got in, in there, I probably just pull out and smoke. Yeah. And, and that's not to say, I mean, there, there is a definite benefit to, to, you know, waiting three, four or five years, um, because you, you really are going to get, you know, kind of the full expression of its profile on untouched by by any of that harshness or or those those rough edges but you know depending on on how interested you are in in that experience or how fast you're smoking through a box you know it's it's not a requirement uh or or even really a a high priority in my view uh the way it might have been a generation ago i think the risk now i think there's a bigger risk for most guys i know I think there's a bigger risk of overaging than of underaging. There, there are a very few cigars that, uh, like I said, if, if I smoke them young, I feel like I'm wasting them because I know how good they're going to get. Uh, but everything else, I think there's a, a bigger risk of buying more than you can at your current rate smoke during their prime. And I think, I think a lot of people are going to start discovering that you know, they've, they've stocked up, um, particularly now in 2019, 2020, uh, the next couple of years should be good vintages as well. Uh, so people are buying while the vintages are good, you know, following these, these exceptionally good harvests. Um, and, and, you know, we're all, you know, cigar smokers, we are not, we don't do, we don't buy in moderation. No, we, don't we really don't. Well. So, yeah. so we're buying more than, than we can reasonably smoke <laughs> and we're going to find that there's a window and, and we've just overbought that window and, you know, five years down the track, 10 years down the track, uh, we're all going to you know, start talking about how, you know, God, I wish I were smoking these five years ago because I, I remember they used to be so good and now they're just something different. Well, I think that, Brent, so there's a couple of different ways I can go here, uh, but I want to talk about this. I want to talk about uh, the, uh, is there any advantage to aging Cubans? Is it an investment uh, from a monetary standpoint? Like you just said, cigar smokers never buy in moderation. We just don't. That's not, <laughs> it's not how we're built. Like we, there's a, it's called CAD, right? It, we all have it. There's no cure other than we just keep buying. 
Right. The, the cure is when you run out of storage or your <laughs> wife threatens divorce. Those are yeah. those are the two caps on our, our buying. Uh, she hasn't threatened divorce yet, but <laughs> I am 100% out of friggin' room. Uh, yes. Welcome to I, the club. Right. I offered, I told her, I said, well, I can just, I can buy a, a wine door or a large, uh, a, a large cabinet uh, to put in the office. And she, uh, she said, no. And I said, well, why not? And she said, because you'll fill it. She is a very smart woman. She is very wise, wise beyond her years. Yes, yes, sir. So is there is there an investment component to this? Because I think we've all seen, and we can talk about the changes in the cigar industry um, in the secondary market here in just a minute, but is there, an, is there an investment piece to buying Cubans and letting them age? There absolutely is. I, I think the the answer to that is unequivocally yes. I mean, there are returns to be made. Uh, and there are a lot of, the question becomes what kind of returns and for what kind of cigars. So there's a, there, there are plenty of people in the secondary market who, who do exactly that. You know, they, they buy, uh, cigars that they never intend to touch or smoke, uh, specifically so that they can store them and age them and then speculate on them over time. And if you're, some people are particularly good at this and they can kind of anticipate what's going to become highly sought after three or four or five or 10 years down the line. And you can do very well at that. You also see some people suddenly trying to offload, particularly now in 2020, we're three years away from some of the not so good vintages. So now you're starting to see a lot of people try to offload their 2017 uh, cigars as as aged or vintage and they just aren't particularly desirable because kind of everybody knows what they are or you know you're starting to see people try to to sell um things that were never particularly popular in their time and now they're just you know aged and unpopular so <laughs> the the short answer is yes you can make money at that um they're they're definitely an investment i've seen some some guys you know really get into tracking this um, in various from various sources, uh, you know some some auction sites and things like that, and they really pay attention to it, and they'll kind of break it down by category. And you know, the what it looks like is, you know, there are ten to maybe fifteen percent annualized returns available for most categories of aged Cuban cigars, because everybody wants them. Uh, you know, everybody. I won't say. I, I think that's a fair statement. Everybody wants, everybody who enjoys Cuban cigars wants aged Cuban cigars. Not everybody has uh, the means or the uh, patience. Yeah, the patience to, to age them themselves. So there's always a market for uh, stuff that you know somebody else has, has aged for you and just paying a premium for it. So, so yeah, there, there's a premium to be made. But you're not going to get rich off doing that, are you? I think people who are, yeah, I, I think you're certainly not going to get rich off of it. Um, I, sus- I, I, don't, I don't know a lot about kind of the mechanics or the, the financials behind the, the guys I see who do this uh, frequently and do it over a long period of time. I suspect that it's more of a kind of side hustle or a hobby for them and you know, they get to make a few bucks. And I know a lot of guys who will, who will buy certain things speculatively uh, and then try to you know sell them down the track just to free up funds to to buy their actual smoking stock 
And that's a, a seems like a very sensible, smart thing to do. And if I were if I were more organized, I, I might do the same. But but I don't. I just spend money. Uh, right. Which is, uh, you is and me smart. both. Just yep. Spend it. Smoke it. That's what I do. Exactly. Exactly. Um, so yeah, I don't. I don't suspect anybody's getting rich off of it. Uh, but I suspect that uh, a handful of folks who are who have become experienced at it probably make make a good buck. An interesting discussion that I've seen crop up in the last couple of years is, you know, are you better off putting your money in in cigars because there's a carrying cost? Obviously, there's a uh, there's some inventory cost there, uh, and inflation happens over time. And, and so the the conversation that I've seen a couple of times that I think is interesting is, you know, are you better off, you know, taking uh, a sum of money and investing it in cigars or are you better off just taking that money and putting it in, you know, uh, an ETF or something like that and, and letting the, the market returns, um, provide you some yield. So that's kind of the comparison. And I don't know. I've seen, I've seen it argued both ways. So investing in cigars is probably a lot more fun than just, uh, you know, opening an exchange traded fund account and you know, checking and the letting balance it periodically. Yeah. yeah. Cigars exactly. are nicer to look at at least. Right. It's a good conversation piece when you have people over, you know, when the Rona is done before we get into the Rona, I want to talk about box codes because this is the big thing we didn't talk about the first time you were on the podcast. And I think that that's basically integral to everything that we've talked about so far from, from the aging to the crop year to, to, the factory it's rolled in. Let's, let's talk about box code. So on the Cuban cigar box, uh, and it doesn't matter if it's a dress box or, or a cardboard box or sliding lid box, whatever. When you turn that over on the bottom, there's a stamp and that stamp has, uh, six letters in a year. Uh, three of those letters are the month in Spanish. And the other three letters denote the, uh, the, the factory that these were rolled in. Why is that important? Well, it's important for uh, basically the the reasons that you just described. So, one is it the the year the the month and year tells you the the month and year that it was rolled uh, and rolled and boxed, uh, and that generally happens within the same month. Although uh, I don't know that from experience, but I'm, I'm I've I've been given to understand that, that happens in the same month. So, you know, that tells you something about. The vintage, and that tells you what you need to know to kind of deduce what harvest it came from. You know, the harvest that that went into rolling that cigar uh, kind of starts to dictate whether or not that's that's a good vintage. And that's, you know, some people care about that. I, I care probably more about that than most uh, people do. So the month and day is is the information that's important for a Cuban cigar in the same way that vintage is for any other kind of organic, uh, handmade agricultural product is, you know, fine wines or anything else. Vintage matters. The three letter factory code, there's, there's a fair debate to be had about how much that matters now, but obviously there are, there are lots and lots of factories across Cuba where cigars are rolled. And historically, each of those factories has kind of acquired a different reputation uh, of its own, and and that reputation you know, may or may not have changed over over the years. You know, in the uh, in the before times, you know, before the the kind of two thousand um, you know, ninety nine two thousand two thousand one sea change that happened, 
the 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 factory codes were were not a three letter code. It was a what would that have been a six letter code. So it wasn't you know three letters to signify the month, three letters to signify the factory, and then two digits to signify the year. It was just a single six digit string of letters, and those letters corresponded to a code uh, that. You, you had to decipher in order to, you know, the first two denoted the month, the second two denoted the year, and then the final two denoted um, the factory, if, I, if I'm recalling correctly. I may have the, the, the sequence wrong. But, and then you had to unscramble that, that code. You kind of had to know the key, which it was well known, um, to get the, the month and the year. And then that two-digit factory code for a long time in the 1990s, that never changed. The fact, the two-digit, two-letter, uh, rather, factory codes never changed for a long time. But then you know, this phenomenon started to, to happen in the market where people figured out which factories had good reputations for making reliably good cigars, for making, you know, rolling them well. You, know, you didn't get a lot of plugged cigars. You didn't get a lot of underfilled cigars. So people kind of caught on pretty quickly which two-letter code corresponded to the good factories. And there was a handful of factories in Havana that had really good reputations. The La Corona factory, the Partagas factory, the um, El Aguto factory, which is the home of uh, Cohiba, the H. Upman factory. Those were kind of the factories that everybody looked for. And so people would buy all of the boxes with those codes. And then all of the boxes with other factory codes would just sit on shelves and sit on shelves and sit on shelves because they were suspect. You know, the, the other, you know, factories other than those maybe had lesser reputations. Some of the provincial factories outside of Havana generally had very, very poor reputations from making not very reliable, not very well-constructed cigars. When that started to happen, then they started changing the factory codes very frequently to make it more difficult for people to, to keep track of them. Uh, and then you had kind of the, the quality upheaval uh, around the turn of the century and simultaneously the change from that old six-letter code to the new you know, month, uh, year, and, and factory uh, designators. And those three-digit codes, they kind of kept changing on the same schedule for the same reason. You know, they didn't want people neglecting boxes that were made by less desirable factories or provincial factories. And that, that has, has held true. So uh, ever since then, you'll see that the, the three-letter code that uh, corresponds to a specific factory changes not quite every year, but every 18 months, every 24 months it usually sticks around just long enough for people to kind of get accustomed to which ones are which and deduce which ones are which, and then they scramble them again. Uh, and then, you know, within 12 months, everybody's figured it out again. It's interesting. It's less important now because, you know, over the last, you know, 17, 18 years, the quality really has become much more consistent. So you're, you're probably as likely to get a, a really good box from a, a provincial factory uh, as you are from one of the, the big name Havana factories. Now, uh, that was absolutely not the case 25 years ago. 25 years ago, there were huge disparities in quality, and those reputations that those factories acquired were well earned. 
but now there's a lot less uh, concern about you know, chasing specific factory codes. Honestly, they could probably Habanos could probably stop changing the codes every 18 months without any major consequences at this point uh, because the quality is consistent enough. It's interesting that, that you bring this up because a lot of people in the non-Cuban industry, like you smoke non-Cubans, I smoke non-Cubans, people in the non-Cuban in- industry really badmouth Cuban quality. And I have been guilty of this as, as well where uh, Cuban quality control is, it's certainly not what it is in the non, non-Cuban factories. It, it's, it's just not. I think we all know that. But is it really that bad still where you've got to, like you said, people will figure out these codes to figure out where it came from to, so they know what to avoid, at least until it changes? My opinion, my experience is that it is not that big a deal. You're absolutely correct. It is, it is not, it's not what it is in the non-Cuban world. You know, one of the other cigars outside of the kind of the world of Cuban cigars that I've been enjoying consistently for 20 plus years is, is Padron. I've always, always, always at every point in time over the last 20 plus years, I've always had a box of uh, Padron Anniversario Diplomatico Maduros in my humidor. Those cigars are so unbelievably reliable and consistent. I can, I could pick one out of my humidor tonight and it would, it would perform and taste exactly the same as one that I had pulled out in 1998. Just absolutely rock solid for as long as, as I can remember. Cuban cigars are not like that. They're, they're not that consistent. They, they are not, they have not reached that level of quality and they probably won't in the foreseeable future. But I mean, the, the quality is, is, I don't want to call it good enough, but it has improved to the point that it's no longer kind of the primary concern for me when I'm looking at boxes. For me, it's more about vintage because there are good harvests, there are bad harvests, there are good crops, there are bad crops, and and that kind of shifts the window of probability of you know what's likely to turn out well you know a couple of years down the line. So, does it infuriate you though when you hear? those in the non-Cuban industry talk about how bad Cuban cigars are, but in they turn around and they say things like, you know, but we've got a Cuban profile. <laughs> yes. Yeah. When I hear people who are selling, who are in the business of selling non-Cuban cigars, uh, bash <laughs> the quality of Cuban cigars, that's kind of a lazy and easy argument. And it's also a, you know, 25 year old argument. It's really not true anymore, but it's an argument that they can get away with because not a ton of people have the experience to call them on the carpet on that. So yeah, it, it's, it's, uh, it's a little annoying to hear that. And then as you mentioned to like the very next sentence is always like, you know, bragging about how Cuban-esque their cigars are after they've just finished <laughs> trashing Cuban cigars. It's, right. it's a little bit funny. And we talked about this last time, like what would happen if Cuba suddenly wasn't communist and, it would the floodgates open like with Cuban cigars as we know it would go away because all of the non-Cuban cigar makers would immediately try to go down there and exploit it. Oh, absolutely! Everybody who had spent their entire careers bashing Cuban cigars would—I uh, suspect they would—they would be uh, <laughs> singing a very different tune in very short order. Money talks. Money certainly talks. Let's yes, it does. 
Let's talk about uh, uh, quickly what's changed in the the secondary industry. There's been like a, a I, I don't want to call it like huge news. If you're not a cigar geek, you probably don't care. And if you're not into cigar uh, Cuban cigars, you probably care even less. But there's been kind of a, a, a big deal that's happened here in the last few months around the secondary industry. Uh, Bond Roberts. You want to talk about that real quick? Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, yeah, you're right. Uh, you know, the, the launch of Bond Roberts, um, I don't recall the exact launch date, but it was, uh, it's been three or four months. It's, it's, now, I think it? it's been three months. I think it's been, I think they launched uh, beginning the second quarter. Uh, so I, I think it's been three months. And, and for those who aren't familiar, Bond Roberts is a, um, a, an online auction platform for aged and vintage and rare uh, Cuban cigars. And uh, it, it's not unique. There have been other auction platforms, but the existing auction platforms, at least that I'm familiar with, are kind of more like auction houses. Like, uh, you know, you you consign your lot to them and then they provide a valuation and auction services and uh, they take a, a hammer fee and a, a seller's fee and it's it's kind of a more traditional uh, auction format. Uh, Bond Roberts is a, is a, there's still a and I don't, I'm not familiar with the the inner workings of it because I haven't uh, I haven't used it frankly. But the way it appears, the way I understand it is, it's a little bit more open than that. It's it's not it's not eBay by any means, uh, but it is more accessible to uh, people who are holding inventory and uh, you know, provides a, a kind of more accessible route. Um, to, to join buyers and sellers. And it, the interesting thing about it, the, you know, the reason this has been kind of big news for cigar geeks is, you know, it has, it has provided a new outlet, a new um, avenue for the exchange uh, and buying and selling of some really interesting aged and rare and vintage stock. And a lot of inventory has, has gone through that platform in, in the last three months that isn't often seen and some of the prices that some of those cigars have, have brought have been absolutely eye-watering. I mean, there have been um, boxes go for multiple, multiple thousands of dollars. The, the other side of that is, you know, even, even a lot of cigars that uh, most, most Cuban cigar enthusiasts would have thought were kind of pedestrian, you know, regular production, few years of age, uh, good quality, you know, stuff that a lot of us kind of have sitting in our humidors uh, has drawn some really, really interesting prices. And so that's that. Ha- it's that has happened just enough that now you're starting to see some people really kind of go, you know, big game hunting. You know, they're they're starting to pull out their their big guns. And, and list it for really, really high prices. And so it's caused a lot of conversation within Cuban cigar circles about, you know, what is this doing to the secondary market? Is this going to drive the secondary market prices so high that it starts dragging the, the kind of retail market with it? Or is this going to drag more speculators into it? You know, what we were talking about earlier, you know, now that there's this new outlet for it, are there going to be more people you know, snatching up good quality current production cigars uh, in order to try to flip it uh, later down the line because this new platform is available. I was having a conversation just last night with a, a friend of mine who's a, a, a 
a fellow uh, Cuban cigar enthusiast, and he and I were were talking about seeing some of these prices that are these cigars are going for, and we're looking at at our own humidors, and we're going. God, do I really want to smoke that now? Because that <laughs> box is worth a thousand dollars, or you know, a box that I paid, you know, a few hundred bucks for a few years ago. You know, just sold, just sold for a, a grand. And you know, do I really want to smoke that box now? <laughs> or you know, it just—it's changed the whole conversation around, you know, how how kind of the economics of the secondary market and also how we as individual um, smokers uh, value our own inventory, our own cigars. Yeah. I, and for someone like me, I, I've got several hundred Cubans. I certainly don't have probably anything near where, where, where you have or where others have. I don't know how much that affects me because I bought them not, with the intent to age and then resell and, and try to recoup some of that, uh, that money and, and, and maybe a little bit more. I, I bought them with the intention of smoking them. So I don't know if that's going to affect me that way, but I'm interested to know your thoughts on how this is going to affect retail or if it, or if it will, if we're seeing a, a, a 300% markup in, in a, you know, a $250 box of Cubans, that now suddenly is selling for a thousand and we see that 400% markup. Like, are we going to start seeing retail prices get dragged along with this? And is the secondary market essentially going to start pricing people out of Cubans? I think both of those are very legitimate questions. Uh, and both of those kind of get right to the heart of the matter, you know, on the, on the issue of, you know, are, is this going to affect the retail market? What I anticipate is, you know, just for ongoing regular production stuff, probably not. There's some kind of pockets within regular production where, you know, the, the H. Upman Sir Winston is a good example of this. It's current production. It's made every year. If you want them, you can get them. You might have to be a little patient because they generally only get, uh, get shipped once a year. Sometime around September, October, you'll see all the retailers get supplied with Sir Winston's, and then the rest of the year is dry. Uh, the Particus 898s, same way. Um, you can get them. They're made every year, but they generally hit around like February, March, something like that. So for things like that, where there's just a tiny bit of scarcity, uh, I think there might be an effect there. I think you might never see those cigars on any kind of discount or sale or anything again, those you might start to see the retail market go up. Any kind of special release, uh, I think there's, if it gets starts getting a, a little positive word of mouth, uh, you can probably bank on those selling out very quickly. Uh, so any of the uh, Casa de Libano uh, exclusives, any of the regional exclusives, limited editions, um, any of those, unless they're, they're really, really poorly received on release, I think those are probably going to become a little harder to find or a little higher priced. But for the bulk of the retail uh, market, I don't, I don't see that being affected by you know, Bond Roberts specifically or by the secondary market generally, except to say that you know, the secondary market has seen uh, pricing inflated over retail price for a long time, long before Bond Roberts. And Bond Roberts is, is kind of provided an, an outlier um, or an extreme example of that. You know, but like I, we talked about earlier, there's, there's a markup to be made for 
uh, cigars that have a few years. The secondary market's always a little higher. People can always kind of snag as many boxes as they can of something that's particularly sought after or rare or whatever, and, and then, you know, market up. But Habanos has done an increasingly good job of keeping that revenue for themselves just by, you know, marking up higher and higher and higher uh, wholesale prices and retail prices. And the, the Cohiba Talisman, uh, which was a limited edition from, from 2017, is a perfect example of that. You know, they, they, you know, they're very good capitalists for being communists. <laughs> Because they can see the secondary market too, and they see that every single limited edition Cohiba from the last, you know, at that point, 15 years is drawing exorbitant prices on the secondary market. And they very reasonably thought, well, why shouldn't we capture that value for ourselves? So they released the Talisman and priced it at $75 per cigar for a brand new, fresh off the rollers table cigar, 750 bucks for a box of 10. Uh, and they sold out. They sold out <laughs> instantly. They sold out so fast that they decided to keep making them. It was a 2017 limited edition. They're still making them. It's been three years, and they're still <laughs> selling them at $750 a box. You know, and when the retail price is is there, is it sort of $750? You know, how much of a markup can you possibly get on the secondary market? How much you know inflation beyond that is there really? Because you know, Habanos is, is just keeping more and more of that, capturing more and more of that value for themselves. So, yeah, I, I, I can foresee some, some, you know, increased pricing just from, uh, just from Habanos at the wholesale level. Those price increases, I think, are going are gonna to keep going, are, are going to keep getting bigger. And then some of the, the special releases, I think, might become a little more scarce. So what, what I'm hearing you say it, I just want to make sure that I, I frame this correctly because this is, this is literally what I'm going to take to my wife is that, uh, <laughs> oh, God. Like, don't you blame me for your divorce, James, <laughs> things like H Upman, uh, the Sir Winston's like, I want a box of Sir Winston's. Don't ask me why I just do. And I've always have since I first started this hobby and I found out that there was a Sir Winston cigar. I wanted a damn box of Cuban Sir Winston's. What you're saying is is this year is probably the year to get them, not only because of the crop that was used to roll them, but but because going forward, it's probably going to be very, very difficult to to get these at a reasonable price. I would say, yeah, I would say that, I mean, you could argue whether the price today is, is even reasonable, but yes, they will never be cheaper than they are right now. And it sounds like, it sounds like to me, I mean, cause if I'm remembering correctly, 650 is typically what they, what they were in the past. And you can sometimes get that on sale for like 500, 450. I, yeah. I, I think I've, I think I've seen them pretty routinely for 550. Yeah, uh, maybe that's it. Maybe five, that's it. 550 to high fives. There was, I'm, I'm reluctant to say this. There was a sale uh, yes. just <laughs> last Christmas. Uh, you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Some some retailer had them on sale for four hundred dollars a box, which um, you know you, I was, can, you can debate if that's reasonable. <laughs> I already had multiple. I did not need another box of Sir Winston's anymore. <laughs> but for four hundred bucks, I I couldn't not buy them. Right. So, so I absolutely <laughs> bought another box, and uh, 
Yeah, funny story about that. We were driving on our way to Disney World to spend what is reasonably a, a ton of money mm-hmm. at Disney World. We're we're driving. And as I'm driving, I'm also looking at my phone. Don't judge me. And <laughs> you know that's it was, my pet peeve, Jay. Yeah, I, no, I know. It might it was blowing up. It's not my fault. It's everybody on Discord's fault on the on the Simply Stogie's Discord. Uh, it was blowing up. It's like, this is on sale, $400. Everybody, like, red alert. Everybody go, 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 go. And so I looked at my wife. I'm like, look, I know we're about to spend, like, a lot of money to have a nice <laughs> vacation. Like, I understand that. But these will never be on sale like this again. No, no. And and she's like, you always say that, and they always go on sale. And so we drove for about three hours, and she finally looked at me, and she's like, all right, go ahead and do it. And by the time I went to do it, they were sold out. Yeah. And that's, and you know, that's the argument to make your wife tell her, you know, remember the, the H Upman, Sir Winston thing, you know, I told you they'd never be on sale again. They've never been on sale since that was, that was a great price. They sold out so fast. I missed out on them that there's your argument. Yeah, no, that that's absolutely. That's how I'm framing it. It's like, look, I missed out last time. This time, like, this is legitimately probably the last time they're going to be even close to reasonable. Like I'm, I'm gonna pull the trigger when these, when these come out. But I mean, here's, here's the hill you have to climb. You have to convince her not to let you buy one box. You have to convince her to let you buy two boxes, one to smoke <laughs> and one to age, so that in five years you can sell that second box and recoup all of the expense of both boxes. It'll be, it'll be practically free. You sir are a genius. Uh, however. That only I sounds don't. smart. It never actually works on wires. It's not going to work because she knows the odds are in like three years when I'm out of the first box, I'm going to say, screw it and open the second box and start smoking them. So that, yeah, she, she, she knows me. She knows me too well. Uh, quickly, uh, uh, Joe, like how has COVID, I mean, besides like the shipping stuff, how has COVID impacted uh, the Cuban cigar market? And, and I, I ask this because, be, you know, because of the nature of what Cuba is, there's not a whole lot of information and even less reliable information that's coming out from Cuba about the Rona. So, I mean, you're absolutely right. Uh, shipping has been the biggest thing. Um, you know, most international cargo hitches a ride on on international passenger flights. There have been extraordinarily a uh, few international passenger flights. So cargo has been, has just slowed to a crawl. I I have not bought anything since the, the start of the pandemic. I had a box, I had an order placed uh, just when things kind of hit the fan here. And that box ended up sitting in a warehouse for six weeks uh, before it actually got on a plane. I stuck it in the back of my humor. Who knows if it'll ever recover? Who knows what kind of conditions it was in for those six weeks? I haven't uh, attempted to buy anything since. So yeah, shipping has been a huge issue. Um, I've seen some conversations about how it's affected supply and demand. And it has really, it appears to have hit the the supply side pretty hard because you know, one, one of the things that Cuba does really particularly well is public health. So when the, the pandemic um, started to unfold in Cuba, they, they kind of, uh, you know, put their, their public health system into, into, you know, top gear and, and went full bore. And that included uh, shutting down a lot of the, the cigar supply chain, um, you know, slowing down or stopping uh, production of uh, a lot of things. 
um, stopping a lot of air travel. So even what was being produced wasn't really getting out. And now three, four months down the track, you're starting to see some retailers um, start to like their, their inventory is thinning out a little bit. Yeah. The supply chain for uh, Cuban cigars was never a well-oiled machine. It was anything, but, uh, but yeah, I think the, I think there's some, some pretty good hints that the pandemic has really thrown some additional wrenches into, into the, the supply chain. Will that, will that affect the, the Cuban cigar industry going forward? It's not like Cuba has a whole lot to fall back on. I mean, this is their, this is their major export. This is, this is their moneymaker. And l- literally the United States is the only country in the world. that's like, no, we don't want your cigars. Right. Uh, everywhere else, I mean, they're they're top sellers. They are they are sought after by aficionados and new enthusiasts alike. Like, what does this look like if they're not able to 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 export these on a regular basis because of the epidemic or uh, the pandemic? Like, is this is this going to hurt them long term? Are we going to see maybe some brands go away? I don't think so. I I don't think it's going to hurt uh, the production side of it i think it may hurt some retailers i think you know as retailers are constrained on two sides with their their inventory dwindling and their incoming supply dwindling and the outgoing shipments becoming an enormous challenge and kind of grinding to a halt i could see this hurting a lot of retailers uh but on the production side i mean yeah the the cash situation in cuba um from friends and acquaintances and friends of friends is, is absolutely uh, a humanitarian crisis. It's, it's horrible. And, you know, as a, as a society, it's, it's going to have some real long-term negative consequences, Uh, but just in terms of, you know, the actual raw materials and production of cigars, I I have a hard time seeing how it's, it's going to hurt in the long run because, you know, the, the raw materials, the leaves themselves, the pilons and the, you know, the curing barns, uh, you know, those things, don't, they don't get worse with age. So, you know, let, let the leaves age a little longer, you know, the, the stuff that's been rolled, but they can't ship, you know, it'll, it'll age, um, on site before it's boxed. So, um, it, it'll still be there and available to export when that becomes possible. And I think, I, I think this being a luxury good, I suspect that there will be that once situations return more to normal or to evolve into whatever the new normal is going to be, uh, I suspect there will be some pent up demand because you know people like me haven't bought anything, uh, you know, this entire time because of the challenges uh, that we're facing, and twenty nineteen is a good vintage. We're starting to see twenty twenty vintages that those are anticipated to be good too. So there's going to be some pent up demand. So as soon as um, the, the production capacity and the export capacity resumes, uh, and that, that pent up demand is unleashed. I, I suspect they'll be fine. And if not in a couple of years, they can just sell it to, to bond Roberts and, and make a <laughs> ton of money. Right. Or they'll, you know, maybe two years from now, they'll have some brand new aged line that they'll be uh, selling for $750 a box. Right. If they had a little bit of forethought, like that's what I would be doing. (laughs) Like this is the pandemic stick. We can't get it out. Let it age and we'll set some aside. We'll have a limited edition uh, later on down the road. Uh, You never know, man. Right. Like I'm hoping that like that'd be, that'd be kind of fun. I know you said that you have not purchase since the pandemic happened and like right as it started like something sat there for for 
way too long on a tarmac and a plane in a box somewhere that it probably shouldn't have been. Uh, in my experience, so I waited. I didn't buy anything. There were things I was looking at at the beginning of the year, uh, and, and my money was just going elsewhere. And so when the pandemic hit, I'm like sitting at home, and I'm bored, and I want to buy some Cubans. And I thought, no, this is a bad idea. It's never going to get here. About a month ago, month and a half ago, uh, a, a large online retailer, I'm not going to say the name. I, I might say it in another episode down the road, folks. So if you really want to know, let me know. Uh, info at simplystogies.com. Uh, they've started shipping with Bovida because they know that it might sit there. I've ordered twice from them. Uh, the first one, it got here within three weeks, which is typical, like normal non-pandemic shipping time sometimes. Three weeks is acceptable. Uh, and the second one took three and a half. So, and both came with Bovida and the Bovida was fat and full and happy. Uh, which, which, which made me happy. I think it depends on what region of the world you're, you're ordering from. I've heard a lot about uh, some shipping times getting a little closer to uh, you know, what was previously expected uh, from Europe, from Asia, and from Australia. I think there are still pretty significant delays. They may have improved. Again, I, I haven't been ordering. Um, but yeah, that's that's very smart on the part of the retailers to to recognize that there's a potential that you know this parcel might sit in a warehouse for a month, month and a half, uh, and to vacuum seal it and put some some humidification in it so that it shows up in in reasonably good condition. Yeah, and the other one that that I, I've put out there on on uh, on on the gram, as the kids say, uh, that I that I purchased from is as a Canadian company, RSVP Cigars literally two, two weeks, like no issue. Like it was, it was 10, 10 days from the time I ordered until, until they sent. So there, there are places out there, but again, you're going to probably pay a premium at this point because the, the, the supply is probably, or the demand is greater than the supply. Yeah. And that's interesting. There's probably a real opportunity for those retailers who happen to be situated in a way that, um, you know, they can, they don't have the same shipping challenges uh, as some of the more established retailers. There's probably a real opportunity for them uh, to acquire new customers and uh, take a piece of a pie because you're right, because there's, there's literally, and we talked about this a little bit the last time you were here, like you've got to be aware of who you're purchasing from and you've got to make sure that they are reputable and you've got to make sure that you're not getting taken for a ride. And I, there are countless stories of somebody finding an Instagram retailer <laughs> and getting taken for a ride and they get, you know, it's, it, it, it's a fake Cuban. It's, it's full of, you know, dog hair and floor sweepings <laughs> and whatever else is in there. So you want, you want to make sure that you're ordering from somebody reputable and that the best way to do that, like Joe, in your opinion is what, like friends. Oh, how to find uh, yeah. a reputable retailer. Yeah. Um, you know, friends. Yeah, that's that's the long and short of it. Um, it's you know, simply Stogies is is a, a fantastic community uh, with a, a wealth of knowledge and experience. Um, there are several other uh, you know very well established, long established online cigar forums. Um, you know, for someone who's uh, new to cigars or you know experienced with cigars but new to to Cuban cigars or something like that, if, if they're interested in um, in you know, learning about that, 
some guys, some old school guys are still guarded about their sources because, you know, they, they started back in the day when, like, you had to cultivate a personal relationship with an actual human being in a retail shop in some other part of the world. And so some guys are still guarded, but for the most part, that's, that's not the, the norm anymore. So, you know, if you, if you get involved and get active in, in one of these online communities, everybody's generally very uh, willing and very happy to, to help out. I mean, you mentioned the, the thing with the H.O. and Sir Winston's, like when something good's going down, it's, it's not cut <laughs> quiet by any means. No, so it is not. There's, you know, there's very clear signals that like, this is a good thing that lots of us are jumping on. So, um, you know, figuring out um, reputable sources uh, is, is, is generally pretty easy in those communities. And then from there, you know, try a few different, uh, retailers, try a few different sources and everybody kind of values different things and has different preferences. And so you develop preferences for different way you know, one retailer over another. And I have my favorites and, and everybody else, uh, you know, everybody has their own favorites. Uh, but it's, it's not too difficult, but, um, yeah, please, for the love of God, don't, don't rely on you know, Facebook or Instagram or, or social media. Yeah, no. Like unless somebody has said, "Hey, this guy's legit." Like don't. Yeah, don't. That's 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 really really sound advice. Uh last question I want to ask you Joe, this is going to be a fun one, I promise. Last question. <laughs> the pandemic gets way worse and the ap- apocalypse is upon us. Mm-hmm. You have to start bartering with cigars. Ooh. Right? So the Cubans are obviously going to be worth a little bit more than the non-Cubans at this point, because now you're never going to get Cubans again. What's the one box you refuse to barter with? My one box that I, I would refuse to part with, uh, under any circumstances. And it's, it's funny because, you know, this kind of parallels the bond Roberts secondary market discussion, because, you know, seeing what some of this stuff is worth now you start to have that that thought in the back of your head, like God, could I ever could I ever let go of this or that? Or geez, maybe I should, you know, cash in on this thing or that. <laughs> the one box of cigars that I would, I, I just could not bring myself to part with, uh, is a 2014 box of uh, Quattro de Say uh, Imperiales, uh, the absolutely gorgeous uh, discontinued Churchill from the the Quattro Say line. Um, they were discontinued in 2015, I think. So, uh, my 2014 box is from the, the Partagas factory in Havana. It's, uh, it's an absolutely stunning box and they are, they are my favorite cigars. Uh, now depending on which day you ask me, it's either that or a punch <laughs> thrown up, but it, it's very, very high on the, the list and it's a gorgeous box. They don't exist anymore. They're not making anymore. And I, I just don't think I could let them go at any price. There you go. That that's the box uh, to to. Go I think in. I would eat them before I bartered them away <laughs> for food. That's I'll put it that way. I'm not sure if you'd get the same enjoyment from eating them <laughs> as you would smoking them, but I understand. I, I very the sentiment. much doubt it. <laughs> I do understand the sentiment, Joe. Thank you so much for coming back on Simply Stogies. I like things are always changing in the in the uh, the the secondary market in the Cuban cigar industry, so we'll definitely have you back on uh, as the expert. Uh, to talk about these things and your experience with them and kind of what you see coming down the road. Uh, like I said, I, I really appreciate you having me. It's it's always fun to hang out with you, James, and uh, get to chat a little bit. So uh, happy to do it anytime. Absolutely. Joe, thank you once again. Uh, that'll do it for this episode. Join me next time when I'm not quite sure what I'll be talking about, but I promise 
it'll be Simply Stogies. Stay smoky, friends. Thank you for listening to Simply Stogies. Please rate and review Simply Stogies on iTunes. You can follow James on his cigar journey on Instagram at Simply Stogies Podcast, all one word, and on Twitter at the Twitter handle at Simply Stogies.